Today's reading is taken from John 4, verses 1 to 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. 
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Thank you, David. You're going to try and use just the camera, right? The phone, yeah, okay. Sorry, battery issues on that. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can come now to listen to this wonderful encounter. And we pray that you'd speak to us through it. And we thank you that we can be, as it were, flies on the wall and listen in to Jesus, the master evangelist, as he speaks to this lady uh, and changes her life. Uh, Please change ours also. Amen. Most of us struggle with talking to other people about Jesus. Uh, But there is so much we can learn here from the master evangelist himself. Without doing any miracle of healing, without feeding the 5,000, just by using his words, this woman becomes miraculously turned around. And the change is outstanding. She comes as an outcast in her community. She draws water alone at the hottest time of the day. She doesn't come down to the well uh, with the other women in the cooler times of morning or evening, presumably, because with her history of having to cycle through men in the village, uh, in a small community, she was a threat. She was shunned. She was an outcast. And yet from one encounter with Jesus, that's totally changed. She is now running to the village like a kind of over-enthusiastic puppy. She's speaking to everyone there about Jesus. And because of her words, which are highly persuasive, a load of people come out to Jesus. And then because of that, he stays with them two more days. And because of that, many more became believers, testifying, verse 42, that this man, Jesus, really is the saviour of the world. What a huge impact. Um, all because Jesus talked with this woman. And we get to listen in, we get to learn how Jesus does it. This is, I think, the perfect warm-up for our weekend together, where we will be learning how to better answer people about Jesus and do it with respect and grace. So today, in John chapter 4, we are learning from the master evangelist himself. Now, If you are here and you wouldn't call yourself personally a believer in Jesus yet, um, don't tune out because it's it's really you that Jesus is speaking to first and foremost. But even if you've been, like me, a believer in Jesus for decades, you've still got heaps to learn, not just in what he says, but in how he says it. Um, I don't know about you, speaking personally for me, I need all the help I can get. I find it difficult speaking about Jesus to other people. And I've tried, over the years, I've tried different approaches, and maybe you can identify one of these strategies, right? So after my initial puppy enthusiasm, getting converted, talking to everyone, about after I've been a Christian a year or so, my strategy was one that I would call volcano evangelism, right? So I was at high school, I knew the importance of speaking about Jesus, didn't really know how to begin, Uh, I'd gone through my immediate circle of friends, the pressure would build up until finally I'd kind of target a victim and let it all out. And of course it always went badly. You don't win the person by winning the argument and often that can do more harm than good. 
So that then led me to adopt another strategy which I called fair play evangelism. And it goes like this. I show interest in someone else and then I ask what they did on the weekend and I listen to them and then they're meant to reciprocate. They're meant to then do the same back to me. They're meant to ask me questions about my life, show me the same interest that I showed in them because fair's fair, and then I can talk about church and what I learned about Jesus. And I tried this for a long time. I'd show interest in people, but it never was reciprocated. Now, why is that? Because give people a moment, they love talking about themselves, right? And who normally listens? So suddenly you've got a well-meaning guy who's listening. You just want to open up. And it's never reciprocated. All right, so maybe that's you. I don't, you know, so, and then you give up on vocal. You think, I've tried. I've tried. We don't know how to do it. Our puppy enthusiasm is long gone. Volcano evangelism just burns people. Fair play evangelism doesn't rip people. Don't play fair play. So then many Christians kind of slip into the silent witness approach. You win them over by doing your good deeds, which the New Testament commends, right? But it doesn't commend it if you never say anything. Because as good as your good deeds can be, no one can infer from your good deeds that there is a gulf between themselves and God because of sin, and that God has sent Jesus as the unique and all-sufficient saviour into the world who manages to breach that gulf by dying on the cross, weirdly, and then raising, uh, you know, being raised to life three days later as their Lord who smashes through sin and death. You can't infer that from observing someone's good deeds. It has to be told. So... Lately, my strategy has been the surprise answer strategy. So here's what happens. I go to Coles, right? And the lady at the checkout, she always says, how you doing? Had a good day? And instead of just saying good or, you know, and she says, you done anything interesting? I, you know, catches you on the hop, go on, not really. I thought, that's a bit lame. So now I try and, I'm ready. So, so she says, you done anything interesting? Well, yes, as a matter of fact. I'm a church pastor, I've been trying to work out how to explain to, G, to teenagers the benefits of scrolling what Jesus says rather than TikTok. <laughs> oh, she doesn't know what to do, right? But she's stuck. <laughs> and um, look, I'm trying, I'm trying, right? Uh, you know. <laughs> Again, generous praise, Marty, thank you. All right, um, thankfully Jesus models a better way and we can all learn from it. And I call this responsive conversation. Jesus is very respectful of this woman. And what's intriguing is that when you analyze the, the discussion, although he gets the conversation started, it's the woman who moves it along. Jesus simply keeps pace with her and he responds to her. And he might give interesting replies, but he doesn't bombard her with everything that she needs to know all in one gulp. He lets her set the pace and he moves along with her. In other words, he's not preachy. He models this style of responsive conversation. It's a conversation, a genuine conversation involves both of them moving along together and it's responsive where Jesus responds to what she says. Now, um, there's no outline today because of technical issues. Poor Abby was pulling her hair out, um, trying to make 
things work. But anyway, I'll put up some headings on the screen. There are several steps that Jesus uses and each of them teaches us. The first is that Jesus begins the conversation. Not that one, yeah, there we go. Okay, Jesus begins the conversation. But in doing so, he has to get through quite a few barriers. For starters, he's a man, she's a woman, right? Now, that's gonna be 50% of your interactions, right? <laughs> okay, but there's always the possibility that there's an alternate motive when a man speaks to a woman, an ulterior motive. So we have to be careful, but it doesn't mean you can't speak. Um, we want to be not just doing the right thing, but being seen to do the right thing that, so that no one will have reason to think they've got something else on their mind, another agenda. Um, so you have to be careful. To make matters worse, they're alone. No one else is about. The disciples have gone to get food. And the particular location, Jacob's well, is a very suggestive location because it was at this very spot where Jacob, Jesus' ancestor, met his future wife, Rachel, all those years before, and everyone knew it. And in fact, in the Bible, wells are a place where men and women often meet, and they become an item. In this case, Jesus initiates the conversation that's appropriate when you think about it, if we remember to last week, because he's the bridegroom, right? But gender is a barrier, and then race is a barrier. She's a Samaritan, and in verse nine, we're reminded that Jews don't speak to Samaritans. Both of them knew that rule. And because of those barriers, it would have been very easy for Jesus just to sit down, be quiet, and ignore her. The disciples ignored her, right? They went back up the path to the town as this woman came down. They would have passed her. They didn't stop and talk to her. They just looked right through her. Uh, she was just a nothing. Jesus sees her differently. Someone made for eternal life. Okay. Um, made for a relationship with God. But what he has to do is clear the barriers for the conversation to begin. So he takes the initiative, and how does he do it? He connects as one human being to another, and he just says very simply, will you give me a drink? Now you see what he's doing. He is connecting like Jasmine does at Heathfield High. One human being to another over very basic human need, to have breakfast, or in this case, to have a drink. He's tired, he's thirsty, she's drawing water, he hasn't got anything to draw water with, he asks her for a drink. But you see what he does when he's do he does, there's a genius in this, because who has the power? He says, will you give me a drink? Who has the power now in this interaction? She does, right? Because she can say yes or no. He gives her the power. Um, he's made her, himself dependent upon her. Now, this isn't fake. He doesn't set this up just so he can talk. He, he's really thirsty, but it's also a brilliant strategy. It comes from realizing, even though other people may not be Christians yet, right? They are fellow human beings, and they have much to offer in the way of help. And we've got to not be so proud as not to ask for help. Okay, sometimes we can be too proud to relate to other people like this. So suppose, for example, you're isolating with COVID. You can reach out to a neighbor and say, look, we're, we're stuck at home. Would you mind, would it be possible for you next time you go to the shops to get us some milk? That'd be lovely. Sure, you've got a relationship. You're doing work around the house. You ask the guy across the road 
for a hand or some advice. You connect as a human being. You bring home a puppy to your house, this happened to us this week, right? <laughs> and you talk with your neighbour about their advice on puppy training, right? <laughs> so Jesus gets through the barriers by connecting at a basic level as one human being to another. He doesn't ignore the barriers, but at least they're talking now. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? They're, they're talking. Now, note what Jesus does next. Having got the conversation started, he now excites her interest, verse 10. If only you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, that's a bit weird, right? <laughs> but it's what you can pick up, and it's a great thing to store in your head and to say the phrase, if only you knew. We can say that in our conversations. If only you knew who it was that I follow, that's worthwhile saying because most Christians, most non-Christians think that Christianity is all about rules, right, and shoulds and should nots, instead of being about a person you follow. If only you knew how good he is and how loving and kind and how he fills me up, you'd be interested. Or if only you knew how exciting it is to actually discover things about God. That's news because, you know, the one church service they'd sat through might have bored them. Turn it on its head. If only you knew how light it is to live under God's rule, you wouldn't so quickly dismiss what he says as being burdensome. And then, you know, the other person thinks, well, they assume there's a good side to life that I've been blind to. Perhaps I have. Okay, the key principle here is to excite interest and make them cu curious, arouse their curiosity. If only you knew, use it. Jesus does it by speaking about living, uh, living or running water, which makes this woman puzzled. It's not clear what he means, is it? So she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep, where can you get this living water? I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Now, at this point, Jesus could have stepped into preaching mode. The conversation's been started. She's interested. She's asked a question specifically about him. But notice, he doesn't download everything at once. What he does at this point is extremely instructive. Instead of giving her all the points of the gospel, he limits, his, um, limits himself to painting a picture. Next slide, thanks, Michelle painting for this woman a picture of what he can give, of himself as the thirst quencher. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He paints a picture. Now, of course, it still needs filling in. Of course, it's not still clear. Jesus doesn't give all the details because he knows that if we run too fast, too hard in approaching someone, they're gonna run away. Just like if, you come, if you're bushwalking, you know, Cleveland or somewhere, and you come across a kangaroo, a mother kangaroo with a joey in her pouch, if you, you approach too quickly, she'll just bound off. You have to gently come up and then, you know, then, then you're there with her, okay. Um, it's often the same in speaking 
about the things of God. Too many times in my own experience, I've come in too hard, too fast, with too much information. People run away. Jesus doesn't do it. He could have downloaded everything, but he limited himself to painting a picture of a, of a spring bubbling up and then welling over into eternal life. Now, why does he paint a picture? Presumably, he's talking about the gift of the Spirit whom he pours out into the lives of believers. In fact, in chapter seven, he'll say, you know, this is the Spirit. But instead of stating that and becoming all theological, he doesn't do it yet. He paints a picture, why? Because there's enormous power in a painted picture. A painted picture stays with you. A painted picture also helps you see things differently. One of my favorite South Australian artists is Christine McCarthy, who does paintings over lino prints. Have we got a picture of that? Yep, there we go. There's one, such one. It's an, of an olive grove, right? Now, I can tell you, I have never seen an olive grove foregrounding a yellow sky. But having seen that painting, now I walk into an olive grove and I can appreciate better the light that comes through the leaves. Okay, that, that picture stays with me and it helps me appreciate something through new eyes. That's the power of it. Jesus paints a picture of the gift of his spirit in terms of a spring of water bubbling over, something that's both desirable and life-giving. Just like he asked her for water, so he is able to give her life, thirst-quenching, living water, he says. He paints the picture so as to focus her on himself and what he uniquely is able to give her. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to find ways of painting pictures which describe what Jesus can bring people. Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, and now verse 14, Jesus speaks of himself as the one who is able to give the gift. Right? So he's, he can do this for, for her. And we've got to find ways of describing what Jesus can bring people, a, a, a way of taking people off just looking at their screens and a, a way of helping them realize that Jesus can satisfy their thirst. We've got to use picture language to, to help them to look to Christ because he's the key. So if, if you sense, for example, someone feels beyond God's forgiveness, why not say to them, do you know, Jesus is like a waterfall you can continually come to him, stand under him, and he will wash you completely clean. A picture is very powerful. Uh, someone's dissatisfied with life. You can say, Jesus is like a, a well of deep, clear water you can constantly come and drink from and be filled up. You see the power of a picture. He doesn't explain it all. He gives it to her. And he gives her time to think. And even though she hasn't properly understood, she's clearly keen. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and won't have to keep coming back here to draw water. And then he tells her, Go and call your husband and come back. And then she admits, I have no husband. And then Jesus levels with her and says, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. 
Now this is Jesus' next step, and that is to draw out the truth from her about her sin, the honest truth. And this is tricky. Jesus knows if he keeps following this theme of eternal life, he's going to have to tackle the issue of her sin and her need for life. Now, obviously we are not sinless like Jesus was. We don't have divine foreknowledge like Jesus did, right? And we therefore need to be very careful. We are not the savior, Jesus is. We are, what are we? Fellow sinners, right? We are on the same level with, that, with everyone else. We are not there to condemn uh, or to convict them of sin. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. But we are there to help the Bible call a spade a spade in their life. That is, um, we're to bring out the honest truth. And it has to be done with great care and great gentleness because people, when you start talking about sin, will assume that you're judging them, all right? And we have to say, I'm not judging you. I'm on your level. <laughs> I'm a fellow sinner. And we have to point out one of the reasons why God hates sin is because it, it's so destructive. It, it ruins things for us. And then point out that the God who made them and loves them, they, he has better things in mind. He doesn't want you to be, you know, to be reckless and, and self-destructive in the way we live. So for example, you know, if someone was sitting for, in a room on a crate because that's all they had to sit on, you'd, you'd love it for someone to say, I'll get rid of that box, I'll give you a lounge. Okay, and we've got to describe that. It's Satan's lie to, 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 for people to think that sitting on a crate is better than sitting on the lounge that God has to offer. So when we discuss sin, we need to be defending God's right way and saying his way really is the best way. And in the case of this woman, the remarkable thing is not so much that Jesus knows everything about her, which is remarkable, but the really remarkable thing is that when he brings these things out in the open, he just affirms it as true. He says, what you've said is quite true. He doesn't dump on her. He doesn't look down on her for her sin. He just draws it out and then admits the truth of it. Now, that itself is worth a week of theological reflection. You know, get someone to own the truth of their sinfulness and then you have made immense progress with someone. Because the necessary step that they've now taken enables them to admit that they now need a savior. I remember sometime back meeting with, um, when I was working in the city church, meeting with a graduate who'd um, come to church to check Christianity out and I was following her up, and um, we were sitting in a cafe, and we'd met a couple of times, and, and she was engaging with the ideas, and she was tossing them around, but it wasn't until I gently leveled with her that she became a Christian. I, I, I had to say, look, Rebecca, you know the gospel, you enjoy tossing ideas around, but we've answered all your questions, and it seems now you're just playing with the ideas. And I said, you need to understand that Jesus wasn't sent into the world so you could play with him as an idea. Okay, because in doing that, you're still rejecting him because he came so that you would believe in him and he would become your savior. And when I said that gently, just like that, she looked down at her hands and she knew I was right and two days later, she repented and became a Christian. But it required 
being honest about what she was doing and drawing her out, okay? Fifthly, Jesus deals with this lady's questions. In verse 19, after drawing her out about her sin, what now happens is that this woman changes subject and she retreats to the safety of a current theological debate. This often happens, doesn't it? Um, the, the conversation gets a bit pointy about sin in someone's life and then they retreat to the safety of a theological topic that's going around. And in this case, it was where is the right place to worship God? On the mountain in Samaria or the mountain in Jerusalem? Okay. And uh, we can have red herrings thrown at us like this, can't we? We can say, well, I believe in science, not the Bible. Uh, what about evolution? Um, why is the Bible so hard on gays? Now, they, they might be interesting topics, but often, often case, they are smoke screens. Um, so what do you do with that? Well, it's instructive how G Jesus deals with it. His answer comes in three parts. First of all, he diffuses the objection. He says, verse 21, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, he says, this isn't the important issue. He just takes the heat right out of it. And we might say, you know, whether God made the world in seven days or 14 billion years, he still made it. And that means you and I owe him our praise. Poof, just dealt with it, right? Um, or on same-sex marriage, we might diffuse the question by saying, you know, look, the reality is all of us are broken. All of us have fallen in the area of our own sexuality. We all need outside help to make us whole again. Poof, there you go. Diffuse the objection. Next, Jesus speaks the truth in the plainest of language. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because, get this, salvation is from the Jews. <laughs> now, at some point in talking about Jesus with people, you have to be honest You've got to talk about the exclusivity of Christ. He is the only saviour. There is no other one um, able to take away our sins. There's no other one who is able to give us uh, hope of eternal life. Um, no one else saves us. Every other religion, you've got to save yourself. So you have to talk about the exclus exclusivity of Jesus. And he does it here. Salvation is from the Jews. He just says it honestly. Now, suppose he'd done that without first diffusing the tension. If he'd done that, the barriers would have shot up. You know, it would have been the end of the conversation. By diffusing the tension, by taking the heat out of the issue, the barriers are down, he can speak plainly. And then thirdly, verse 23, he cuts to the chase and he focuses in on what God requires of us. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks implicitly, and you could be one of them. So you see, he gets off talking about buildings and churches and places of worship, and he talks about God's call on the life of this woman. He says, God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And finally, last step, uh, with the conversation drawing to its goal, Jesus lastly deals with this woman's confusion about Jesus' identity. The woman said, verse 25, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us and then Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. Or more literally, he's using the name of God himself, I am he who speaks to you. And now for this woman the penny drops. First she had thought that he was just a Jew 
and then she'd viewed him as a prophet. But now her eyes have been opened to Jesus as the Christ. He, you're the savior sent by God. And ultimately, that is the point that people need to come to. At this point, the disciples arrive. The woman leaves her jar, just like the disciples left their nets. Who cares about a jar? Who cares about a net swim with what we know? She runs off with all of her puppy-like enthusiasm and she invites the townsfolk who have been ostracizing her. She doesn't care about that anymore. She's got bigger things. She invites them to come and see, just like Philip invited Nathaniel in John chapter one. Come and see. And she speaks about Jesus to everyone in the village. Could he be the Christ? And she gets them to come out to meet him. And having met, met him, they say, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. We've now heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Okay. So, you know, if, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm not a Christian yet, can I just ask, who do you think Jesus really is? Who is he? Um, there are answers to this. And the point that Jesus wants you to get to is to acknowledge that he is the savior God sent for all the world, for you and for me. You know, before we leave the story, Jesus has a word for his disciples. And therefore, this is Jesus' word to us if we're already Jesus' followers. You know, it's very easy for us to think, go through life and think now is not the right time for evangelism. Now is not the right time for speaking to people about Jesus. If only Jesus knew how hard it was, then he would understand that now is the time for silence, not speaking. And he says, you know, forget about asking what's the right time. He says, open your eyes. (laughs) Boy, we need to hear this, don't we? Open your eyes. He says, the fields are ripe for harvest. The disciples had walked past this woman. He was one person ripe for the picking. He says, open your eyes. You know, the person that clicks through your shopping at the supermarket, open your eyes. They're ripe for harvest. Do you believe it? You know, at the time Jesus spoke, it wasn't easy for him. He still had his work to do of dying for the sins of the world. The mission was largely limited to Jews and excuse me, now half-caste Jews, Samaritans. The Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out yet. The world population was only 200 million back then. Well, since speaking those words, Jesus has now paid for the sins of the world. The Spirit has been poured out, softening people's heart, opening them up to belief. More people are now alive in our generation than ever have been before in the history of the world. And these people are now worried about their future because we're living in a global society, aren't we? They are worried, they are clueless about life, they are thirsty for meaning, and Christ comes and offers himself as the thirst quencher. Open your eyes, Jesus says. Open your eyes. The opportunities are in front of you. People are ripe for harvest. Father in heaven, help us to believe what Jesus says and forgive us that we don't see people the way he does. We see people like the disciples do. We walk by, and all of us have done it. Father, thank you for those that saw us differently. 
and bothered to tell us. Father, open our eyes and help us to improve and learn from Jesus. Improve and learn from him about ways to speak. And we pray that you'd give us opportunity and give us the skill in increasing measure. In Jesus' name, amen.